Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a starless interlude. There are seven episodes. This is the last one of them. It's a cold Monday evening in February as Will McCullough fetches a batch of banh mi sandwiches for Phoenix and he to enjoy after a day of cat-sitting for a friend. No cilantro, naturally, given Phoenix's genetic predisposition to hating the herb. Preceded by spring rolls and chased with Vietnamese iced coffee, it is the makings of a perfect evening to record the final voyage into the starless sea. Man, now I'm hungry. <laughs> we haven't actually gotten them yet. We will. I know. I know. But I'm hungry now. But not yet. Fair enough. So this is our final starless interlude, our final voyage into the starless sea. Be aware, if you don't want to know how the book ends, don't listen to this. Better yet, pause now and read the book and then listen to this. I like that option better. So today we will be covering pages 489 through 570 of the U.S. paperback edition of The Starless Sea by Aaron Morgenstern. Should be a lot of fun. Now before we jump in, we have a few disclaimers as usual. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Aaron Morgenstern or her publisher, Anchor Books. Second, and perhaps most importantly, please be kind to us, to yourself, and the authors responsible for the books you love. The world's better with kindness. All right. Fair warning, dear audience, Sokka does not appreciate the fact that he is on the other side of the door. He might make his displeasure known through banging on the door or meowing at the door. But I kind of want to get through the recording of this episode so that I can get to my bonmi. Sokka will wait. And be a nuisance. So to start us off, we have another diary from Kat. This time she notices that texts from Zachary are missing from her phone. Like they've been deleted on the server side, which is unusual. To say the least. When you said the name Cat, it actually sparked something that I wanted to tell the audience. So completely in line and not in line at all with what we're talking about. We have spoken before, I think, of Shelly, who is the cat that used to reside at the Sylvia Beach Hotel. I saw on their Facebook that she has retired and is now living with some of the people that were frequent visitors to the hotel. And while I am sad that there is no more hotel cat, and hopefully they get a new hotel cat, I am very happy that Shelly is living with people who love her. Me too. Shelly's a great cat. She's such a sweetie. I loved seeing her just on the rollaway beds, just outside the rooms or, you know, going and hiding in some of the rooms that weren't quite ready for guests. Curled up in front of the fire. Yeah. She's a wonderful companion for that hotel, and I hope that they can find a new one. Me too. I suspect she will not be the last hotel cat there. The folks who run Sylvia Beach Hotel are delightful folk. And so if you have the opportunity, once it is safe to travel again, we highly recommend that you give that a shot. As soon as we have the vaccine in our arms, I am booking a stay. I don't care if we just have to camp out in the one room that we're in and not go to the library, or if we have to read with masks on. 
I want so bad to go back. I definitely want to spend a, at least a night in the Melville room. The room where if you put a marble on one side, it will roll to the other. Yes. Well, and then you can listen to sea shanties in there, and that'll be perfectly appropriate. <laughs> but anyway, so Kat also does some extra digging into the history of J.S. Keating. Our mysterious benefactor? What? Yeah, I think that's the right descriptor. The Keatings are mysterious folk, and in this case, J.S. Keating is Jocelyn Simone Keating, a.k.a. the mother of Simon. And we see that she has been active in the Keating Society, working to preserve the Starless Sea and to further its goals, to build the harbors up and to make sure that they continue to be a haven for readers. The first chapter is very short. Then we get back to Zachary, because Zachary is our anchor. Back in the Starless Sea, Zachary grants Mirabelle's request for a story. This story that he weaves is something that's more than just a recounting of the stories that he's been reading in Sweet Sorrows and Fortunes and Fables. I mean, it is those stories, but it's also weaving into his own story. And then his imagining for what might come next, because stories don't ever truly end, they just change. And that's really a major theme that we're going to see here through the next several chapters. In return for his story, Mirabelle brands him with the final key that will let him pass through a door back into the Starless Sea. And this is where we see Zachary transform into a key in his own right. And now to Dorian. So Dorian, meanwhile, is dealing with all kinds of phantasms. He finds himself in a simulacrum of Manhattan, and he's confronted by these shades of people that he's known. But they're not really these people. They're actually monsters that have been trying to kill him. And so he has to kill all of these things that look like people he knows and loves. There are people who look like Zachary. There are people who look like Mirabelle. There are people who look like Allegra. None of these are real. All of them are monsters. Which is kind of a head trip, right? I kind of get a little bit of the Heartless from Kingdom Hearts. A little bit. And the most disturbing element about this is that in order to survive, he has to get used to the idea of killing creatures that look like people he loves. Otherwise, he himself is forfeit. Yeah. And that survival instinct is... All well and good in the moment, but as we shall see, there will be consequences for it. This whole last section of the book kind of jumps back and forth rapidly, I'd say. So first we have Kat, and then we have Zachary, and then we have Dorian, and now we have Kat again. Now here, Kat is getting stalked by guardians. But they're not good at it. No, they're just ominous and threatening, and they give that vibe of we're trying to scare you off without actually having to do anything she is not so easily scared off and perhaps most heart-wrenching of all though we see her admit that she's given up on the idea of finding zachary alive she just at this point wants to know what happened to him 
Though we all know that as of this moment, Zachary is alive. And it's Zachary's turn again. He walks through the door. And who should he see but the love of his life, Dorian wielding a sword and then stabbing him through the heart? Because Dorian, as we mentioned earlier, has had to kill numerous creatures that look exactly like Zachary. This is the first time that he's encountered actual Zachary in some time. We don't know how long it's been for Dorian because time tends to move in weird ways down here. And the moment that Dorian realizes his mistake, he's crushed. Back to the secret diary of Katrina Hawkins. So Kat gets a visit from Allegra with a very threatening job offer. So this is all prior to Allegra meeting her fate. One would hope, because if this was after Allegra meeting her fate, well, that just throws everything for a loop. Then she didn't really meet much of a fate, then did she? <laughs> I mean... Here we also get a sense of the depth of Kat's loyalty. The job offer that Allegra offers her is tempting. It seems like it's a good deal. Also, the consequences for not taking it seem pretty severe. And yet, Kat resists. And this is part of how we understand that this is truly someone to walk the mountains with. Kat has a fortitude about her that we all wish that we had, but is very rare in real life. Yeah, Kat is very admirable in this regard. Would that we could all be like her. Meanwhile, we flip back to Zachary. Who is dead! But, I mean, death works a little different down there. Yeah. He finds himself in basically a cardboard world. A paper world, not necessarily a cardboard world. A paper world that is somewhat familiar. Yeah, it seems like a dollhouse, maybe. And it also seems like time is just really forked up here. It's kind of Jeremy Baramy. He sees that there's a castle in the distance and he knows that that's his destination. So he climbs into a boat and sails a confetti sea. I really like the description. The thing to note about this is that it's not just that he's dumped in here and knows that he has to go to the castle. He reflects on some of the things that have happened to get him here. First of all, he is confused as all hell that he is dead and that Dorian's the one who did it. But he also thinks that he was supposed to do something more with his life than just what happened to him. He's supposed to do something more elsewhere. It's supposed to keep going. This cannot be the end. And then he reflects on something that Mirabel had intimated, I guess, that she needs him to do something that she cannot. She needs him to die. So then we go back to Kat's diary and we learn a bit more about J.S. Keating and what she and her friends call themselves, the Owls, which gives us a sense that the Owls may not be as sinister as we have maybe perceived them to be. Now, we've also said this before when we met the Owl King in the last episode. 
it seems like the owls are inevitable, but in the same way that a natural disaster happens, it's not malevolent, it's just something that happens. Fire is not malevolent, but fire consumes. The owls are more just a force. And in this case, though, they're personified by the Keating Society. And these are people who are first and foremost observers, people who observe stories and read stories. And one of the key lessons that we learn from quantum physics is that the act of observing changes the thing that is being observed. This happens to our cat all the time. Oh, yes. Because Sokka really enjoys being an absolute butt. He likes to investigate the back corner of our kitchen counter. But if we are visibly observing him, he tends to avoid it for a little longer than if we were not observing him. And the funny thing is that if we aren't even there, he doesn't care at all. Right. It is something that he does specifically to elicit a reaction from us. And I really wish that I could just not react to it, but it's so annoying. Oh, it really is, especially if there's stuff in the drying rack. Anyway, back to the story. Next, we find Zachary rowing across the confetti sea. I like to imagine him in a little origami boat. So there is a game that I think if you are interested in this aesthetic that just absolutely does the origami and paper very, very well. And it almost feels like he is in that world. And it's called Tengami. I just showed it to Will. It looks really cool. Everything feels like if it's not folded paper, it's cut paper. Also, there is another one that I've played on PC called Epistory that is that cut paper aesthetic that just makes me very, very happy. Could be that world also. Recommend it highly, especially if you want to improve your ability to type fast. I recommend it in addition to people who are looking to improve their typing professionally, also for people looking to teach kids to type. But it's not like a typing game like the way that the typing games were when we were kids. It's actually a game first and combat is through typing. Yeah, it's a lot better than like Mavis Beacon teaches typing. Oh dear God. Okay, going back to the story, Confetti World. So as he lands his boat, he discovers balls of cotton and pieces of string and he recognizes the dollhouse from Sweet Sorrows. And from the harbor. But now, in his version of the harbor, the whole room is burned to a crisp. So again, with the time is weird here, it's all intact. It's all a massive diorama. All of the pieces that people have been putting into the room full of stars and confetti seas and little post-it note people and cotton ball sheep. And he's the right size to be in this world. It's pretty charming. Although the sign above the door in the castle in town, though, is rather ominous. Know thyself and learn to suffer. Which is actually Zachary's family motto. And then we hear some buzzing 
and then the following dialogue. Hello, 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 hello. Hello, Mr. Rollins, you are here at last. Hello, hello, hello. That's not creepy. Back to Cat. So Cat then has a conversation with someone whom she thought was just another undergrad up at school in Vermont. And turns out was a spy. Dun, dun, dun. Someone we are referring to as Not Sarah. Because we don't really know who she is, but Not Sarah has been having a rough time ever since the fall of the Collector's Club. After it got burned down and then Allegra disappeared. Suddenly all of those promises disappeared, all of those threats are gone, and not Sarah seems to be finding herself at a crossroads in her life, but she doesn't know what to do other than clandestine things. It's like a cult just disappeared out from under her. Yeah, and she doesn't know how to communicate except in cryptic riddles. Which is just tiring. I mean, to the point where she's not able to just go up and talk to Kat. She has to say, go to the following address, pick up this payphone. You can look at me up through the window in this Barnes & Noble. And the fact that payphones still exist in this world. Yeah, I mean, they were dying by 2001. Yup. They've been dead proper since 2005. But some still exist somewhere, I'm sure. All kinds of weirdness there. Back to the son of the fortune teller. He enters the life-sized dollhouse, which is filled with larger-than-life-sized honeycomb and occupied by bees that are the size of cats. What is the largest bee that you have ever seen? Uh, probably about an inch in diameter. Uh-huh. Carpenter bees are about that size. Carpenter bee. Similar to a carpenter ant, as in it will chew on wood in your house. Holy fork buckets. That I know. Yeah, I, I'm not so cool with cat-sized bees. That's uh, one of those lines I just draw. But they do seem friendly. Yeah, well, it turns out that these particular bees... They know Zachary. Zachary told them that he loves them. These bees are also familiar with the story sculptor, a.k.a. Aaron Morgenstern. According to Will's theory. The one who sculpts the story. Sometimes she is in the story. Sometimes she is not. Sometimes she is pieces. Sometimes she is a person. She told us you were coming very long ago. We have waited for you a long time, Mr. Rollins. They always talk in run-on sentences that are so repetitive that it's really hard to read. And I am very glad that the first time that I experienced this book was audiobook. My take on this is that each bee represents a node of the central consciousness, but they're not all processing at the same sync. So there are some nodes that are running a few cycles behind the others. And so it's almost like a round or a medley of speaking. I mean... In nerd culture, the biggest parallel example, I guess, to this collective of bees would be the Borg. Kinda. Although their way of speaking, you know what it reminds me of? Reminds me of Star Trek V, sentence you never thought I would say. <laughs> and the endless row, row, row your boat medley between Spock 
and Bones and Kirk. Oh, God. The less said about that movie. But that little moment is a lot of fun. Fair enough. And when I was a kid, I could compartmentalize and like some parts of that movie. And then it just got weird. I mean, it did ask the eternal philosophical and theological question, what does God need with a starship? Okay. But now as an adult, the most unbelievable part of that is that Yosemite is still as pristine as it was in the 80s. I know. <laughs> because humans are trash. We destroy everything. I know. I mean, just seeing how much has changed, even just in the past 10 years, is pretty heartbreaking. It really is. Anyway. On that dour note, let's go back to the bees, otherwise known as the kitchen. And they are still friendly and they still want to provide services for Zachary. Like, do you want a cupcake? Do you want a cupcake and a cocktail? Do you want, you know, all of this stuff? And then we come to find out that everything, everything that they have been feeding him is made out of honey. I mean, that's what they got. Of course it's made out of honey. I also love that they react by saying, you said you loved us. Right. <laughs> and he's like, I didn't say I love you. I don't know who you are. But you said it. Here, Zachary has a bit of an epiphany of what he needs. And that is a dance with fate. Because he recalls that he's owed a dance. So what you're saying is that it's not cupcakes. That's not what he needs. He doesn't need cupcakes. He doesn't need a cocktail. He doesn't need... All of this food that is literally just made out of honey. Zachary's need for those things really reminds me of the Microsoft Manual of Style for Technical Publications, third edition. Um. Yeah, this is stuck in my head for years now. Um. So the Microsoft Manual of Style for Technical Publications, third edition, says on the subject of the word need, often confused with want... <laughs> I have long theorized that that style guide was written by dads. Because that is just such a dad thing to say. Yeah. Now, what he does need, though, is a dance with fate. Now, we move back to Kat's diary. And here, Kat flashes back a bit herself to a party that she attended back in the before times. And an encounter with a certain pink-haired goddess who told her some enchanting fairy tales. Fairy tales that she wasn't familiar with about owls and fate and fortune teller. They resonated with Kat, and she doesn't know why. They don't sound like any fairy tales that she's heard before, but they feel lived in. Quick side note. Kat has a crush on Mirabelle. I mean, who wouldn't? Yeah, that's fair. So now we get to the reunion of Zachary and Mirabelle. They share a final dance before the Starless Sea can claim the dollhouse. And we see the honey rising around them as the two of them dance and talk a bit about who Zachary is, what his role is in all of this. And who Mirabelle is. 
I really do love Mirabelle as both fate and an advocate of free will. Uh, it reminds me of the philosophy of compatibilism, which posits that human beings don't really have the ability to do other than they end up doing. Like every choice you made is the result of a logical chain of events that stretch back to the Big Bang. And it's all if A, then B, then C. You're, you're completely determined. But at the same time, you have free will in that you have a choice and those choices are shaped, but you still have agency over them and you still bear responsibility for them. And there are some people who find this to be a bit of a cop-out. And there are others who find this as a way to reconcile a sense of moral accountability for their actions with the knowledge that their will is bounded. Anyway. Their dance ends. The door closes behind Mirabelle and melts away into the wax wall, leaving Zachary alone in an empty, collapsing ballroom. It's time to go, Mr. Rollins, sir. So... Zachary is trying desperately to avoid his fate. The end is here and Zachary fights it. In the end, the Starless Sea claims Zachary Ezra Rollins for its own. It pulls him under and refuses to let him surface. He gasps for breath that his lungs do not require and around him the world breaks. Open. Like an egg. That's pretty traumatic. And now we get to talk about Rhyme. Rhyme is in an interesting place. She's lived her entire life underground and the vast majority of it silent. We don't know exactly how long it's been since she took her vow, but she's finally released from it. I don't know if you've ever spent a long time without speaking, but it, it hurts to speak a little bit afterwards and you kind of forget how to do it. At least at first. So not so much that I have spent a lot of time silent because we have cats and I talk to the cats. Mostly, Sokka, get down! Leela, stop scratching at the door! But I talk. However, there is something that happens when the only people that you speak to are you, Sokka, and Leela. And that's it. That's the only people and or cats that I speak with besides talking on this podcast, which thank the gods I talk on this podcast because otherwise I would have just melded into only being able to talk to you. Like, it's hard if I ever talk with your parents on the phone or if I talk with anyone in real life, which has barely happened in the past year. I was never terribly comfortable talking in a group, but now I am painfully, painfully awkward about it. I have a really hard time having an actual conversation with people who aren't you. Well, I'm glad that I serve as an exception for people that you're uncomfortable talking around. <laughs> well, of course I'm comfortable talking around you. You're a safe space for me. You have very similar interests and you never belittle me you also are excited when i'm excited you're also willing to have these in-depth conversations about books we love 
this would happen whether or not we were recording it. <laughs> if both of us read the same thing, we would be diving into it. We might not be recapping it, but we would be diving into it. In fact, that's how we started deciding that maybe doing this podcast would be fun. So the Keeper, meanwhile, has opened one final door to bring them up to the surface. And they find themselves in the bookstore at the Strand, which seems like a pretty great place. I know, I just keep picturing Powell's. I love the idea of there being a secret world hidden beneath a bookcase in a bookstore. Me too. I love that a lot. In fact, my dream for the home that we own is to get a door that is a bookcase that is like a hidden entrance into a room. So when I was in eighth grade, we had an art project, which was to design our own dream home on graph paper. And I designed it so that every room that you entered was through a hidden door. <laughs> so the entire hallway was just bookcases. Like the entryway was just bookcases, bookcases, bookcases. And each one of them had a secret book that you pulled to open the door. That is incredibly charming and so on brand for you. Also fiendishly impractical. Absolutely, but I would totally do that. Also, one of my favorite places in the entire world besides the Sylvia Beach Hotel is this gaming cafe, I guess, gaming restaurant that is called Mock's Boarding House, and it's up in Bellevue, Washington. And their kind of group gathering room, the one that you can rent out for large groups, is hidden behind a bookcase. It makes me so happy. It's a little speakeasy. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. They have a little bar in there and comfy seating. Yeah, it's great. And they encourage you to play games. And of course, there is a game store attached to it. So you can go and purchase the things that you have learned to play now. They also do organized magic play and Warhammer and War Machine and D&D &D and all of the usual things that you associate with your friendly neighborhood game store. And their food is excellent. That true. So next, we find Dorian mourning Zachary on the shore of the Starless Sea. Not only mourning him, sitting next to his dead body. This entire experience has been really traumatic for Dorian. He's been through a ringer. Yeah, I wouldn't know what to do with myself if I was sitting next to your dead body that I have impaled with a sword. Let's not find out, shall we? Okay. Can I use a lightsaber instead? How about not? Let's not have any impaling. You're no fun. I'm rather fond of me living, and I'm also extremely fond of you not killing me. That's fair. You're the only one that makes any money in this house anyway, so... Exactly. <laughs> I kind of need you to stay alive. Yeah, you're not going to be owning a home if I'm dead. Yeah, well, I'm also not going to be eating because this podcast costs more to make than it brings in. It's a labor of love. Not that I'm complaining, because I absolutely love doing it. And then, lo and behold, he spies a familiar ship in the distance. Bunny pirates! Yes, indeed. Next, we get another entry in Kat's diary, specifically about a tarot card that she received from Madame Love Rollins. In this case, it is the moon. The moon, of course, has multiple roles here within this story. 
Also, every single tarot card has multiple meanings so that you can fudge it into whatever you want it to be. That's the whole idea. Go ahead. And Kat has taken to storing this tarot card on the dashboard of her car. It's a little talisman almost. She is on her way to Canada for a job where she is hoping to start her life back up after her foray into trying to find her long lost, presumably dead friend. So speaking of her presumably dead friend, we flashed over to her dead friend. <laughs> Let's take the presumably out. He dead. He dead dead. But only mostly. Because it turns out that that box that Dorian has been carrying, the one that the moon gave him, carries a heart that belongs to fate. And Zachary also belongs to fate. So by the transitive property, this heart belongs to Zachary. <laughs> Logical weeps. Honestly, that's really what most magic is. It's drawing connections between things, no matter how tenuous. Well, in the perfect, this is a story way that this is written. Dorian opens the box and this heart is just sitting there beating faster because it's like, but Dorian, I love Dorian. And I'm like, this is gross and creepy. I'm here for it. Some things that are meant to be romantic maybe don't come off quite as charming. <laughs> oh, come on. I like weird and creepy crap. Yeah, I, I'm just not a fan of raw organs. <sighs> but that's just me. Says the person who will eat shrimp tails i mean that's just what calcium it's achy and gross and it's like trying to chew fingernails what is wrong with you oh but enough breading and you don't notice it no 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 i've seen you just eat the shell of other like not breaded it no mm -mm, i'm done nope mm -mm, nope 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 done we've all got our own weird red lines that we don't cross yeah that one, though, isn't that weird. Not on my account. It's weird on your account. It's not weird on my account. Anyway, back to the secret diary of Katrina Hawkins. She gets a feather key given to her by a mysterious stranger and an address. And presumably in Toronto. 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 I'm sorry. I'm not Canadian, so. Me neither, but I can say it right. She arrives at this address to find what seems to be an abandoned library. Both creepy and awesome, because I absolutely love the silence of an uninhabited library. Also notable about this library is that it's populated by paintings of people that she recognizes. She sees Zachary. She also recognizes Dorian as the creepy dude who was watching him that night in the Griffin all those years ago. And there are all these owls and bees and keys and swords, things that she's recognizing from that story that she heard from the pink-haired lady. And from all of her deep dives into the Algonquin and the Collector's Club. Finally, she comes to a door and having a key, she doesn't know what else to do. You open a door. What happens next? I'm going to find out. 
and scene and fate fell in love with time and we then get zachary and dorian reuniting for real this time zachary ezra rollin wakes gasping his new heart hammering in his chest that's gotta be creepy as all fork yeah it's definitely a shock you know i can only imagine a sense of relief that this even worked yeah I love the end of this little chapter, but this is not where their story ends. Their story is only just beginning, and no story ever truly ends as long as it is told. This is a great little reminder that Happily Ever After is really just the storyteller running out of gas, because the fact of the matter is so much happens after that, and there's a continual journey that goes on, and... Nothing ends at a wedding. We've made this particular point before. Oh. I would say that it is important to remember that while there are narrative breaks, the story isn't over. There are milestones reached. Getting married is one of them, if that is your choice. If that is where you and your partner or partners see yourselves. But just because it's somebody else's story or somebody's hope for your story does not mean that it has to be your story. Unless, of course, you are in a book and are not real. And in this case, this may not be where their story ends, but this is where the telling of it pauses. And we know that the two of them will get married because Madame Rollins needs to meet her other son. And I'm here for that. We love love. We do. In all its forms. To wrap the story of the Starless Sea. We cut back to Kat's abandoned car outside the library. And a familiar figure is sitting there. A ginger cat sleeps on the still warm hood. I mean, that's what a ginger cat do. A man in a tweed suit leans against the car, leafing through a teal notebook, though there is only moonlight to read by. A young woman in an outgrown school uniform stands on tiptoes, peering in a window. Neither of them notices the woman walking towards them through the trees, but the stars do. Their light shining brightly on her crown. And here we see time and fate once more reunited, the way they were supposed to be. Inside the brick building, a door opens to a new harbor upon the starless sea. Far above, the stars are watching, delighted. We've got a new story coming up and an ocean of possibilities. So, not that I would normally do a detailed read of the acknowledgments at the end of a book, but I actually really like that Aaron Morgenstern acknowledged that Bioware was a very large influence on her specifically Dragon Age Inquisition. The origin of Zachary and Dorian having always been Zachary and Dorian, it just tells me that she was rock solid in her characters, in her knowledge of who these people would be. She didn't start writing a story and then decide to throw the two main male characters together. She went out of her way to create this crafted story around their love story. And... It makes me like her as a person 
and not just as an author. And I know that it's all PR and it's all ways to make you and manipulate you into a different kind of feeling because that's what story crafters can do. But it still gives me the warm and fuzzies. I really enjoyed this book. Just in general, I enjoyed going through the puzzle box experience. That really is what this book is. It's a giant puzzle box. And at the center of it is this warm beating heart that is filled with love for all of the characters in it. There are just so many beautiful little grace notes all throughout with these characters that have flourishes to them that you can't help but fall in love with. I think about the innkeeper in the moon, which is just this simple little vignette, and you can't help but fall in love with these two people who are also at the same time falling in love with one another. And I think of the story of the little girl who went to live with the Owl King and how she made friends with all the ghosts, and you can't help but fall in love with that. Just so many of these little vignettes that really bring it all together and create something unique and wonderful. What I absolutely adore is that, so Portal Fantasies, The Wizard of Oz, Alice in Wonderland, Stardust. These are all things that I love. I love this idea of going from our mundane world into something more magical or more intricate. This story is woven through all of these vignettes. And at the end, the tapestry that is created is beautiful. Well, I have to say thank you for sharing this one with me. This is a really good idea. Thank you. And now it is time to move on to our character highlight for this week. Who did you have? So I am beyond enchanted with the kitchen. Even now, the collective of bees that is the kitchen really just wants to make Zachary comfortable. They might be a little misguided and they might not be able to quite understand how emotions that are not happy and fulfilled work, like confusion, doesn't seem to register, upset, anxiety. No, they're just like, I know what will fix this, more honey. Uh, but they want to fix it. So it's really cute. I love the reveal that the kitchen is kind of this pan-dimensional beehive that is stuffed into the walls of the dollhouse, which is a little more enchanting in a story than it would be in real life as someone whose adolescent home was actually like covered in bees. Somehow bees had made a hive in the walls and I guess that the insulation in the walls of that house probably was poisonous to them because they'd just crawl in through my light fixture into my bedroom and then drop to the floor, crawl around and die. They never stung me or flew or anything. And my poor cat probably had a rather large diet of dead bees. It was gross. Highly do not recommend. This is what comes from having the person who ostensibly takes care of you rent a house and not care about the condition of the house. Not good. So the kitchen, back to the cat-sized bees and not 
the little yellow jackets that infiltrated my room when I was 17 blah, <laughs> are actually charming and telepathic and a collective like friendly Borg. And I kind of enjoy that. I also love the implication that they are the source of the starless sea. Like, they make this enchanting environment that people go adventuring on. I think that's pretty amazing. They themselves are very enchanting. So the fact that they are also creating this world, this universe, this vision, this time bubble, this story bubble, that they are the minions of the story sculptor, a.k.a. Aaron Morgenstern, I guess, a.k.a. Mirabelle. It is unexpected and weird, and I'm here for it. I love that. Who did you have? So I went and did something incredibly hipstery, and I picked the protagonist. I know we don't oftentimes pick protagonists for our favorites. Well, okay, to be perfectly fair, that's because Kvothe is an idiot. Yeah, I know. But in this case, I thought that this episode showed Zachary looking at things not just as a quest in a video game, but really thinking about what kind of choices he had available, and then actually making those choices. So the choice to ask for a dance with fate was something that by no means was that the only choice available to him. He could have asked for literally anything, and the kitchen would have done it for him. Yes, within their realm of possibility. But he asked for essentially a relationship. He asked for caring about someone else. I think that there's something really powerful in that. And that's what really helps propel everything out of that loop that all the characters have been caught in. And I also loved that he got to have his happy ending with Dorian. I know there is a trope. There is a terrible, terrible, terrible trope of killing off the diversity character, TM, whether that be someone who is not white, a woman, a non-binary character, or LGBT representation character. Yeah, there is a trope that I hate. Even a show that I absolutely adore and I feel has done better, Star Trek Discovery, Spoilers. They did that. Spoilers again. They brought him back, but they did that. And I was livid. I was absolutely livid because I was thinking that like Star Trek, be better, just be better. And, you know, in this book, Zachary is black and queer. If you don't like that word, I'm sorry. Gay. Queer is a word that I use to describe myself. I am sorry if it offends anybody. That being said, the great thing about this book, even more than the fact that they didn't kill Zachary, is the fact that Zachary's actually the protagonist. Well, and the other thing that really I love about Zachary's story is that it is an LGBTQ story, but it is not defined by trauma. Yes. It is not defined by contending with homophobia or bigotry yes it's very much a thing like that's another trope that oftentimes shows up in media especially media that is aimed at cishet folk such as myself cishet white folk yeah and while i recognize that trauma is oftentimes a part of that experience it's not the soul defining feature and 
people can experience that part of their identity joyously and they should be able to celebrate it and have an experience that is all about celebrating that space together. It should also be said that it is okay to give your LGBTQ and or Black Indigenous people of color characters a happy ending. We don't need to make everything about the elephant in the room of this story is about a gay character and all of the things about this gay character are the fact that he is a gay character. I recently saw people asking for recommendations for books about black people that are not about racism and or trauma, specifically black trauma. And that got me thinking, I'm like, oh my God, is everything I've ever read that has any like non-white, non-cis, non-het person about that person's trauma. Now I need more book recommendations about people who just get to live as who they are without it being about the struggle to live as who they are. One thing I just saw posted on my Facebook by somebody who is trans is this little meme that says trans women would just like people to think neutrally about her. Because, I mean, everything that you ever see is either people just jumping on the we need to protect and celebrate and yay cheerleader or, you know, turfs. Anyway, just think of them as a person would be great. That would be great. Yeah. Duh. So next we come to our game recommendations. This time we have chosen to look for hidden gems. Mine is Spec Ops The Line. Oh, wow. So this was a game for the PS3 and Xbox 360 from like 2012, 2013 or so. Yeah, something like that. And the thing that really struck me about this game is that while the box art and the advertising campaigns and everything made it look like it was inspired by a Tom Clancy type thing or a Call of Duty or what have you, it really had more in common with Apocalypse Now or Heart of Darkness. I mean, that's the same thing. Yeah, I know they are. Just letting the audience know that I also know that they are. Okay, good. One of the really interesting things that it does is it forces the player to reckon with the consequences of the typical mowing down of opposition soldiers. Yeah, because there is this interpretation that all video games, or if you're a little more granular, all shooters, are contributing to the fall of society and killing your ability to have empathy and insert any other fear-mongering you possibly can put onto a video game. Yeah. So this game is not... Again, I wouldn't call it a good game. I wouldn't even really call it a fun game. No. But it was interesting in a way that a lot of games in that genre really aren't. It asks us to think critically about how we portray the U.S. military in our entertainment. And it asks us to think critically about how we interact with 
the games that we play and how the game presents us with a set of choices that are oftentimes binary and maybe even an illusory binary where it is this your option is to shoot this person or not shoot this person and the second choice is to stop playing the game effectively it sort of walks you through how someone can find themselves in the position where they become the villain of the game where they cause more destruction and death than the supposed antagonist does. It also does a good job, to me, of illustrating why finding a more creative solution in your games, whether you're designing a game or maybe playing an RPG or tabletop RPG, finding a different way besides burst in, shoot, would be immensely better. Now... I will say that I think the game's ambitions outstripped its game loop because at a certain point they start trying to make it fun. Oh. But they don't necessarily do a great job at it. You can see there's two warring impulses. And one is to make your game loop fun and engaging so that you keep doing it, while at the same time wanting to interrogate that same desire. And there is a lot of cognitive dissonance. And... It's not always entirely successful. Do you think that that was intentional? I think part of it was, but there's also the famous quote that it is very difficult to truly make an anti-war movie because the temptation is always to make it look cool. And in games where you are oftentimes playing a power fantasy, there is always the in-the-moment temptation where the moment-to-moment micro-scale things feel good, and then it's really hard, though, then to truly draw back and show just how bad that is. Right. I, not in the same exact way, have had this bite me in the butt with a overly ambitious project, and game designers that felt like they had to design a game rather than an experience... Spec Ops The Line would have worked better, I think, in my opinion, as a narrative experience where the gameplay supported the narrative, where instead of that, they did standard shooter gameplay and put this exceedingly disturbing look at yourself in the mirror, see what you've done narrative on top of it. Yeah, almost all of that occurs in cutscenes. So... You're seeing the mirror put up against you, but you are not yourself living the experience that the cutscenes are trying to give you. Exactly. Like I say, it doesn't always succeed, and it doesn't always work at what it's trying to do, but it is at the same time far more ambitious than a lot of what you see in video games. Like, I'm not even going to say that the writing is what you would call good good it's just video game good (laughs) that's kind of insulting to narrative designers but i get what you're saying there are better written games there are better playing games but i thought it was daring for a major triple a studio to try and put something out like this now at the same time the developers were hamstrung by the requirement to put in a multiplayer component which ended up really just dividing their resources for something that didn't actually fit with the mood and themes that they were trying to discuss. Yeah, I also get the impression that 
the marketing department didn't get the memo about what the game really was about. Yeah. Like I say, it was pitched as essentially a Call of Duty clone. Right. But it is not. Yeah, it's a Call of Duty critique. But yeah, that was my pick. I think that that's a really good pick. I think that it is really difficult to have a grand vision that goes against norms for the genre and having the designer impulse to design a game that feels good going against everything else that the game is supposed to be about is really tough. I tried once to make a good walking simulator or poetic experience or whatever you want to call it game while I was in school with amazing artists who are all on that same page. And then we had a couple of game designers who really, really wanted there to be game elements in this game. And I'm like, dear Esther's a game. Let's do that. <laughs> and they're like, but there's no gameplay. And I'm like, precisely. Let's design an experience, not a game. I think they had the same kind of warring problem if I would have to guess. Because the game is really about the horrors of combat, there's no way you could do it as just a walking simulator. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not what I mean. I don't mean it to be a walking simulator. I just don't want the combat to feel good. Right. It would work better as a survival horror style game where you have extremely finite resources and your aiming mechanisms are janky and reloads are lengthy and maybe you have fewer enemies because it really isn't about the quantity of people that you have to mow down on your way to the ostensible end goal. It's the fact that you are mowing people down. And that should matter. Exactly. So yeah, I think there's definitely a place for ambition. And it's also worth noting that in the AAA space, ambition is difficult because the investment required to make something means that making something profitable versus making something good may be the difference between keeping a team employed and sending people looking for new jobs. Risk aversion is real. Anyway, on to my hidden gem. I don't remember when it came out. I just know it's a few years old at this point. But my game is Oxenfree. It was made by an indie developer. It is definitely ambitious in its narrative. And it is meant to be played over and over again because you're supposed to have a different experience with it every time that you play. Also, no true definitive ending. But let me... Uh, the thing that I like about this game is that it has very clear set goals from the developer. They didn't try to overstuff it, which can happen and can cause so many problems. Trying to put too many things into an experience, a game, a book, a movie, whatever, too many cool things means that none of them get to shine. But they did a really good job on this game. They have an interesting mechanic in that there is a radio that you tune and you wind up getting really creepy vibes from and 
creepy messages and things getting sent to you and eventually the radio becomes your unlocking mechanism for doors and electronics and such so they had a small scope on that and they did a pretty good job of it sometimes it felt repetitive but I think that that's better than trying to come up with multiple clever things and then having none of them feel clever. It is a 2D walking simulator and it has dialogue options that are going to lead you to different endings, like I said. It has a very nicely creepy vibe along the lines of like a campfire story, maybe one for teenagers rather than little kids. And one of the things that really strikes me about this game and its art, we took a trip down Highway 101 a few years back when we were living up in Seattle and going down to our favorite place, the Sylvia Beach Hotel. And on the way is Astoria, Oregon. And I looked at this kind of hill behind the bridge that goes over the bay. And I looked at it and I'm like, oh my God, that's oxen free. <laughs> that reminds me so much of the setting of this game. And it made the game feel grounded and real and it made Astoria feel kind of off and creepy to me because it's also this little small town, fishing town, that is beautiful. And we've gone to breakfast there, great little cafes and wonderful vibe. One of my favorite bookstores on Twitter is there and I've used bookshop.org to make sure that we purchase books from them. So that's a great little tip. If you have a local brick and mortar store that you would like to help support, bookshop.org, wonderful way to be able to select your favorite bookshop and make sure that they get credit and also funding for your book purchases. Yeah, I remember that trip through Astoria, and I remember you specifically calling out the oxen freeishness of the place. And the thing that struck me was the sun breaking through the clouds and hitting the trees and the leaves and everything. It was like liquid gold. It was a beautiful place. Now, if you can imagine that hill at night with fog, that's the game. So I've heard that if you like Life is Strange, that this is going to be right up your alley. I own Life is Strange. I have not yet played it. I feel bad. I want to play it. It seems like something that would just be right in my wheelhouse. And yet I haven't played it yet. Right now, my excuse is that I am on my 108th run through Hades and I am not done. I am going to keep playing that game. <laughs> I also really like the characters. I know some people get a little bit annoyed with Ren, who is an audience surrogate. Let's put it that way. But oh my goodness, does that boy talk. For an indie game, this has amazing voice acting. Just going to put that out there. I mean, almost everything has voice acting in response to whatever narrative choices you pick. And yeah, maybe it's a little clunky on the dialogue. It seems like one or two people wrote it and were trying to sound like teenagers. But I've come across way worse in the past. This one was really good, I think, actually. It takes a lot to put together a game, like a lot, a lot. And it takes a lot to put together a really good game. And I really enjoyed that game. It's a shorter experience. It's under probably 
seven hours if you're me. And if you're me, you take a game that should be two hours and make it like 10. So, meh. <laughs> but I thought it was worth going through a second time. I enjoyed the vibe of it. I enjoy games like Kentucky Route Zero, and it kind of reminded me a little bit of that same strange, something's a little off vibe to that. And I'd highly recommend you check it out. I think that they have it on mobile devices now too. I played it on PC. Cool. It's a good recommendation. Thank you. All right. Now it's time for game experiences. I'll let you kick off this one. Alrighty. So back before you and I were dating, but I still knew you, you lived with one of our friends at a apartment complex where a number of our other friends wound up living in and then like rotating in and out of a, what, three bedroom townhome? Yep. Yeah. Including your roommate. He had been there at one point. So that became the hub where everyone would just gather and play games and hang out. And there was one time when I went over there and the game of the day was Soul Calibur, which I'm going to have to admit, I had to ask Will, okay, the fighting game that also has Yoda in it, what was that? That would have been Soul Calibur 2 specifically. This was a while ago. <laughs> but I was a little intimidated, I'm not going to lie, about playing a fighting game in front of a whole bunch of people, especially people who actually knew how to play this game and play it well, and where watching the people playing was an event. It was fun. It was, oh my goodness, who's going to win? Like, you don't actually know anything about that. And then somebody was kind enough to hand me the controller and I'm like, okay, it's not a snake. I can take it. It won't bite. And I played, but the thing about it is that I am a button masher. Some characters in Soul Calibur work for button mashing, others do not. Whatever character I had, definitely did. That would be Maxi, the nunchuck guy? I have no idea anymore. This was more than a decade ago. The fact that I remember this should tell you how many hours I've sunk into Soul Calibur. Yeah, well, I haven't. Sorry, I don't know which character I was playing. But I wound up playing against someone and they were like, they trounced me. But I had fun. I was terrible at it, but I had fun. And then they handed the controller off to somebody else. And I managed to beat them, mostly by button mashing and upper kicking. At that point, they were like, okay, see how long you can go. They handed the controller off to someone who was good at it. And I just kept button mashing and I beat him. His response was, I didn't expect her to just keep doing the same thing over and over again. And I'm like, sorry. <laughs> but it helped a lot with my confidence. And even if I felt like I was going to be terrible at something, these particular friends were really awesome about, okay, well, let's just try. You don't have to sit on the sidelines. You're never going to get good at something if you just sit there and don't try it and they were really kind and we got into the absurdity of how <laughs> button mashing seemed to work for a little while and it was a really fun night yeah i have some fond memories of game nights over at that apartment and yeah it was a good bunch 
That was a lot of fun. So what is your experience that you would like to share? Mine was from the DM challenge at PAX West. Oh, I know this one. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. So we're just going to change people's names because I'm sick of saying my friend. <laughs> oh, okay. Whatever. So our friend, who we shall refer to here as Stan, not his real name, was someone that I've played D&D &D with for many years. He's a good friend. We've played a lot. And one thing I know about him is that even though Stan is in real life a very smart guy, he is happiest when he's playing really dumb. <laughs> he plays dumb characters in a uniquely inventive fashion that really only makes things more fun for everybody else. I say that mostly by everybody else, I mean me, the dungeon master in this case. Oh no, this was very fun for me as well. And also I think the other two people that were our friends that were part of that group. Yes. This is the game where I tossed a torch down a uh, outhouse and got eaten by a purple worm. Yeah, that was the first encounter. <laughs> and I died. Yeah. I got better. Fortunately, the cleric brought you back. And I want to say the second encounter was against a set of cockatrices, which had beaks that if they hit you with them would petrify you. So Stan, who was playing our monk, thought it would be really cool to convert cockatrice beaks into fist weapons that he could use to petrify his opponents. Because I was feeling cheeky and figuring that, let's see where this goes, I basically told Stan, yeah, give me a crafting check here and we'll see what your result is. I'll let you try. So he rolled his check and it was average, but not great. So I told Stan, okay, it works, but every time you make an attack, you have to make a fort save to avoid petrifying yourself. And meanwhile, so does your target. He's like, okay, I can live with that. Moving on, we go through a number of encounters. Again, more people die. The cleric is basically being the champ that is keeping the entire game moving forward. And making it so that players don't just have to shuffle off into the ether. Yeah, otherwise it would have been a slow, steady march of attrition. Until we got to the gelatinous cube. So first, the cleric gets engulfed. Which is unfortunate. And then second, the ranger, me, also gets engulfed. And Stan, being the only one left standing at this point because some goblins had mowed down some of the less ranged adept characters, decided that it was his job to go rescue the cleric and the ranger from the cube. So Stan reaches into the gelatinous cube to grab the cleric, pulls him out. Okay, good. He reaches in to grab the ranger, forgetting that the fist weapons are still on. And then that's when the gelatinous cube fails the fort safe. With me in it. And Stan's arm <laughs> as well. So now we're stuck in a petrified gelatinous cube. I don't remember how we got out of this. You didn't. We died. And then Stan held his hands up to the heavens, screaming, 
why did I make these? And then one of our mutual friends who had also played with me and Stan for many years came up to me and said, wow, you made Stan regret a choice. I've never seen that before. Well done. <laughs> so that was a lot of fun. I had the most fun at that game that I think I've had playing D&D ever. It was a really good experience. And yeah, making Stan regret things. Oh, chef's kiss. It is a game that we will never forget. We may not always remember it accurately, but we'll never forget it. Right. It's mostly <laughs> about the petrification of the gelatinous cube, me, and Stan's hand. Yeah. All right. So now with that out of the way, let's move into book recommendations. So I decided that since we discussed Starless Sea, which is a modern portal fantasy and is really good, I thought I'd bring it back to the first portal fantasy that I really resonated with, and that would be Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere. Okay, I have to say something. Mm. We are recommending the same book. Damn it. <laughs> no, that's okay. I love this. <laughs> <laughs> so Neverwhere isn't a perfect book by any stretch of the imagination, However, I really love the way it weaves in the London below and London above and the way it turns these oftentimes forgotten and marginalized stories into vibrant and living and vital parts of a given city. It ruminates on the idea that London, as with all great ancient cities, builds on top of itself and then conveniently forgets everything that came before. And you find that in the London Underground. You can also see this in, for instance, the Seattle Underground. And these stories are important. These are the history. These are the truths that shaped the city of today. And at the same time, it also gives people who would traditionally be viewed as invisible in you know, most city experiences, people without homes, people who live on the streets, people who are oftentimes seen as panhandlers or nuisances or worse. It gives them agency. They are the protagonists of the story. And the main character is thrust into their world and is similarly invisible. Like we see how his former friends don't even remember him once he transitions into this other world. And he finds his own new community and new friendships and companions in the London below that are far more true than any of the people that he knew above. We also get some really creepy villains in the form of Mr. Croop and Vandemar. Yep. Who are a pair of thugs and assassins that are sent after Dor, who is one of the other principal protagonists. And then we also have the angel Islington, who is at once reassuring and decidedly creepy once their true colors are revealed. The principal protagonist, I think, has shades of Arthur Dent, who is sort of that British everyman who is confronted with the absurdities of modern bureaucracy. Yes. And really serves as sort of that audience surrogate, provided the audience is a white middle-class male. From London. Yes. 
One thing I will say, my favorite rendition of this, and I've listened to the book, I've read the book, I've watched the series that the book is actually based upon, because Neil Gaiman wrote the TV series and then wrote the book. The audio drama adaptation is my favorite. James McAvoy, and then Natalie Dormer played Dor, and I really loved being able to listen to all of the characters play off of one another, and I like the audio dramas that they've made of Neil Gaiman's books, Good Omens, Stardust. I don't think they could do that with American Gods. Just saying. But in addition to Neverwhere, which is the book I was going to recommend, if you're looking for another maybe more fanciful portal fantasy instead of a near-reality portal fantasy and you also like Neil Gaiman's writing, go with Stardust. Yeah, Stardust was the other one I was going back and forth about. <laughs> Neverwhere is definitely more of an urban fantasy because it really is concerned with the nature of cities in particular and urban life and the sociology thereof. Whereas I'd say Stardust is a little more pastoral. It's a fairy tale. But they both work really well. I agree with you completely. I think that that, obviously, is a very good choice. So, now that I've stolen your thunder, do you have any additional thunder that you'd like to use? I just did. Stardust is definitely on my list of portal fantasies that I would recommend. I love things like The Wizard of Oz. I also really do enjoy Neil Gaiman's writing a lot, so I would definitely recommend Good Omens. If you're looking for something dark, go with American Gods. I really haven't come across anything that I don't like by Neil Gaiman. There are some that I like better than others, but he has such a wide range. A lot of them have humor. It, sometimes it's very dark humor. And he even has more kid-friendly things like Coraline and the Graveyard Book. I don't think you can go wrong. I don't either. And I'm glad that we got to share these. As for Neverwhere, your previous roommate is the one that gave me that book to read when I lived with him briefly for a couple weeks. It's a good way to pass a couple weeks. It really is. It's a good recommendation from him, and I am passing it on along with you. All right. So with that, let's get down to our quotes. I believe you want to start us off. Do I want to start us off? I believe it's your turn to start us off. Is it? Yes. <laughs> All right, I will. And because I also may have um, looked at your thing, otherwise known as document, this week by accident, because I was going to write down my quote in your document, I am not going to choose your quote. Thank you. You're welcome. I didn't actually see what you picked for a book, so that wasn't a cheat, I swear. <laughs> we just both thought portal fantasy. Great minds and all that. All right, so I have two because, surprise, surprise, I have a hard time choosing one thing. The first is pretty long. The other one just makes me happy because it's also kind of a pun. The son of the fortune teller rows a boat across an ocean made of paper. The oars dip into confetti and streamers, stirring them up 
in aquatic shimmers of blue and green, though there is no sky here to reflect such colors. It just plays to my color geek, my graphic design geek, my love of bright, crafty, beautiful, created worlds. It does remind me a lot of something that you might see in a claymation. Yes, that's exactly how I feel about it. And then for the one that I found fun and kind of like a clever pun for this book, far above the stars are watching, delighted. That's sweet. Delighted. I see what you did there. I see what Aaron Morgenstern did there. It's the last sentence of the book of the Starless Sea. I just found it fun. That's good. So I had one, and this just really jumped out at me, so I didn't really feel like I had to make a hard choice here. It was just that good, and it was, and no story truly ends as long as it is told. This one just resonated with me because of the way that as long as a story is told, it will evolve and it will change and it will grow and people will add on to it and change it and... Put their own little spin? Yeah. Kind of like the dollhouse room? Yep. I mean, you look at the entire oral tradition, it's built around people evolving these stories into new forms and shapes and everything changes everything evolves and there's not really an authoritative version and as long as it's being told there's going to be a next chapter to it because you'll see how did it happen in this telling how did it happen in this other telling and what happens next because someone can just decide they're going to do that i think it's really beautiful well if you look at things like the story of the three little pigs and the true story of the three little pigs it's the same story told from different perspectives, and it's creative and lovely. If you look at certain things that are adapted from larger texts into like those little golden books, like The Secret Garden is not an insubstantial book. It's not a terribly long book, but it's not so short that it is easily adapted into a little golden book, yet it exists as a little golden book, as a children's story. But the narrative is probably still there in a thread that is recognizable. Stories are updated so that they remove problematic elements or they are readapted so that they highlight the same narrative thread through the lens of a different culture. I think that it's great to see these stories told over and over again. It's also the same idea behind, if you think of the picture wall in Coco, no one truly dies as long as they're remembered. Exactly. The stories live as long as they're told. And I love that quote, and I was going to choose that as well, but then, like I said, snuck a peek. Well, thank you. Thank you for not stealing my thunder. You're welcome. So... With that, I would like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time as we return to Temerant, where we will be covering the prologue through Chapter 2 of The Wise Man's Fear by Patrick Rothfuss. Welcome to Season 2, everybody, in two weeks. Special thanks to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music.
and to Aaron Morgenstern for creating the starless sea that we have enjoyed exploring. Writing and project management courtesy of me, Will McCullough. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. If you'd like to help us out, feel free to stop by our Patreon at patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get early access to episodes, Patreon-exclusive bonus pods, art, and other goodies. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. And in games where you're playing a, fa a power fantasy, a power fantasy? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God.